This is Sean, and you're listening to Promise, a podcast showcasing the heroes of tomorrow. Every episode is an exploration on the idea of promise itself, whether that's the potential for success or the commitments we make to get there. I speak with exceptional, purpose-driven people on their journeys to change the world. To wrap up Season 3, I sit down with Jack Richardson, Founder and Managing Director of Hamia Group. Hamia Group is a discrete secondary market brokerage. If you're not quite sure what that is, not to worry as Jack gives us a crash course early on. We chat about the business of liquidity, its regulations, and how it can be life-changing for founders and operators. We also talk about Jack's journey from small town Australia to this niche space, forays into investment, doing work that feeds his soul, and a life mission to be a better human every single day. Please enjoy my discussion with Jack Richardson. Okay, today on the show, I welcome Jack Richardson. Jack is the founder and managing director of Hamia Group. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you, mate. I feel very privileged to be invited on. I'm super happy to have you here. Jack, please share with us what Hamia Group actually is, because it's not a typical company and it's not a particularly well-known company to the broader Australian public. So I would love for you to share a little bit of background about what Hamia Group does, how it operates, and how you came to founding Hamia Group. Yeah, totally. You're right. I keep it quite quiet, which is often by design. Hopefully that'll make sense when I explain what we do. But yeah, look, I was living and working in San Francisco when COVID hit for a firm there that specialized in, in doing secondary market brokerage of transactions, shares, kind of series C through IPO. Um, so often you're looking at an early investor or a founder, um, sometimes the early team being quite wealthy on paper and with the, the IPO horizon pushing out from six, seven, eight years, as it was a decade ago, or a little bit more to now be 12, 13 years, there's this sort of window in which these people are looking to realize some of that wealth they've accumulated and, and truly change their lives and, and start living a, a lifestyle that matches their net worth um, on paper. And so when they get to that point, someone like myself matches them with uh, a family office, a high net worth individual crossover fund, hedge fund, someone like that, who once upon a time was purchasing at an IPO after six, seven, eight years, and then enjoying the upside in the public markets, which hasn't really existed as much in recent times. So they're entering earlier. In some ways, it's just a risk profile swap. And so it's a direct transaction. The company doesn't receive the proceeds. There's no dilution. As a result, it's just a straight swap on the cap table of equity. And so the vast majority of Hamia Group's operations are out of the US, a little bit out of Europe and out of Asia tiny bit out of Australia, more so by side interest. And yeah, look, I just like living in Sydney is the reason that, that I'm based here. I, I probably should have gone back to the US, but I prefer to live here. And, and that's the reason for Hamia Group being in Australia. There are challenges in terms of the Australian environment and, and the secondary market. So I think I certainly had aspirations to transition what I do in the US to Australia, but there's legislation around 50 cap table line items versus 2000 in the US. Um, how closely tied 
ESOP and ESS in Australia are to tax laws and tax code and also the underlying bylaws and the way they're written about good lever, bad lever. And then the key piece is every single piece of equity probably needs board approval to transition or to transfer in, in this country. And, and that's a good thing in a sense because it's, it protects employees from having a tax bill from exercising options that then may one day become worthless, but it also prevents liquid secondary markets. So yeah, I suppose that's one reason why it's probably not well-known in Australia. Obviously it's, it's difficult to operate here, but also by design, it, it's an opaque space and you know, in many ways, it's like selling a house if nobody knew the house was ever for sale and nobody knew that the house ever sold, right? Obviously the parties, the contract are well aware and, and that's all very clean in that sense. But the first day I, I walked into an office at a firm doing this, the piece of advice I was given was like, leave no footprints in the sand. And so that stuck with me and, and that's sort of how I, I go about my business. And, and I think you, you do it that way, you do it the right way and referrals take care of the rest. So hopefully that, that makes a bit of sense. Yeah. Awesome. It sounds like if we were to conduct real estate transactions without classifieds or without REA, for example. Yeah, exactly. No sign out the front of the house. Yeah. If you know, you know. Yeah, no sign an NDA to be able to look through the whole, which probably happens, right? At a certain price point as it is. So it's very much similar to that, even in terms of the timeline. You often say six to eight weeks start to finish on some of these transactions. There's sort of a, a 30 day period in between where the company decides how they want to proceed. So yeah, very, very similar to selling houses in, in a way. Okay. And how did you actually find yourself in this fascinating niche, not very well covered space? If we go all the way back to the very start from small town Queensland, if we start there, and go all the way through to the journey you made to the US and coming back. Talk us through how all of that's led to founding Hamia Group. Yeah, totally. And I think you're exactly right. Like it took all of that because we are with the sum of our experiences and definitely took all of the experiences in between for me able for me to be able to get to a point to um to do what I've been doing the last couple of years. But um yeah, you're right. I grew up on the Sunshine Coast and I could see a very linear, very, very clear path, incremental growth, chip away. Both my parents were teachers, gave a ton to the community as smart people, talented people. But I'd hear their frustrations when they came home from work about their boss telling them this or their boss telling them that and, and the nine to five and certain holidays and when they could go away, when they couldn't go away and all these sorts of things in it. And it, I just could never see myself feeling fulfilled and feeling alive doing that. So I think from a very young age, I knew that I wanted to do something different. And I would love to say that I had a grand plan and I knew I wanted to work in finance. or I knew that I wanted to be entrepreneurial or anything like that, but there was absolutely no idea. I never, I never had a plan. I think I just knew that I needed to do something different. And for me, that involved changing my circumstances, changing my environment. And so I went to the U.S. It was like three or four weeks after I turned 18. I went to the U.S. to go to college. And that was an eye-opening experience, created tons of new opportunities. And I ended up doing a business degree, a finance degree, honestly, probably because that was what worked for me playing sport. And it was a small university, so the scope of what I could study was quite limited. And it, it wasn't a pure coincidence. 
growing up as a kid, I would hear at the end of the news, like the Dow's up 20 points or the Dow's down 20 points. The price of gold is this, the price of gold is that. And I, I remember asking my grandfather and also my father at the time, and, and I was like, what does that mean? How does that work? Like very simplistic mind that you have when you're a kid and, you know, maybe only 10 years old, but I was sort of thinking like, if I had a hundred bucks, how much would that become? In my head, I think I can perfectly time the bottom and the top of the market that day, right? And then do that every day, one after the other. It can't be, can't be that hard, right? But uh, there was always that seed. And I just, I just, I never, it wasn't for me, right? It, it wasn't for me. It wasn't for people from where I was from. The other seed that had been planted probably before I left Australia was I went to a private high school, went to quite a nice high school. And I'd look at certain kids turn up in very nice cars and different things. And the one thing they all had in common was that their parents had their own businesses. So I sort of understood that you needed to own it. You needed to do your own thing. And there were far better ways to get ahead in life than grinding at the coalface per se. So I feel very fortunate about going to the US because I was in Memphis and the daily transactional volume for fixed income securities in Memphis was gigantic versus all of the other major hubs, right? Obviously New York's a completely different beast, but Memphis had this, these really deep roots in fixed income, which I think was from the coupon being dropped off down the Mississippi river once upon a time. I feel very fortunate that, that I landed there. I, I got this internship and I ended up sitting next to this young trader who was probably the prodigy of the firm. Um, and, and you know, so of all the seats available on the, the, the floor, I end up next to this guy and then I, I was covering three or four people's phones and it was just madness like exactly what you see on a trading floor but he and I struck up this bond and I just I didn't want to do anything else like I, I really got a taste for institutional finance and 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 I loved it but also during that time right I I kind of realized that I wasn't really honoring all of the things that I wanted from my life. The first five years of that firm, you had 10 days of leave and your next five years, you had 15 days of leave. And, and, you know, after that 10 or 20 or whatever it was. And I just realized that whilst the promise of the paycheck might've been really good, I, I was still very institutionalized or I would have been very institutionalized and yeah, that, that wasn't for me. And I think, so yeah, that, that was the foundation and then, you know, I had some amazing experiences working on the trading desk, but it, it, I got really disillusioned because for me, like uh, very, very naive, but in my head, like the analyst should have been the highest paid person at the firm and, you know, Fitch and S and P and Moody's, the analysts there should have been like, they should have been the smartest people in the world and they should have been the, the absolute geniuses. And I think I learned very quickly that what you would expect it should be was, was not the way it was. And I know what responsibilities I had as a 23 year old and the decisions I was making and yeah, they might as well have been widgets, right? Like I just, I just had a feel for the way these things were moving, these loans we were buying and, um, yeah, they could have been widgets and I sort of got very disillusioned with the whole thing as a result of that and kind of went to the Sunshine Coast and almost slipped back into that very linear path. And I probably did slip back into it for a little while. My soul was dying. I, I just, I don't know. It was a tough time. And then blew that up, went and traveled for 18 months, traveled all over the world, incredible experience, spent, you know, time in gardens in Morocco and teaching English to little girls in Panama and doing all sorts of weird things that 
really opened my eyes to the real world again. And then very fortuitously, I was in Panama surfing. Surf was big and there was this guy who I'd watched get absolutely smashed. He was an older guy, kind of 60 odd. And I was a bit worried about him. And basically I started snaking his waves, but like I could tell he wasn't upset about it. It was almost like giving an excuse to, to not have to go. And I got, and I wasn't sure whether he was happy or not with me, but then we got to shore and bought me a beer. We had a few beers and talked about the world and different things and talked about venture capital because again, probably in this time I'd start to think about, well, what do I want to go back and do? And I had this desire to be in finance and this desire to be somewhat entrepreneurial and, and venture capital became a really natural fit and got to the point where he just looked at me and said, I'm, I'm from San Francisco, stop wasting your life. Come to San Francisco, I'll introduce you to some people. <laughs> so I did. And probably four or five months after I met him, I was in San Francisco. He introduced me to, to a friend of his and that was how I ended up in space. So quite an interesting journey. Yeah. I think it's pretty important to highlight that you, you needed to do something that fed your soul, right? I, like you said, your soul was dying. And I think that those are some pretty poignant words, but at the same time, do you feel like you needed those 18 months of travel in order to be able to do what you do now? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I'll need to do things like that for the rest of my life, to be perfectly honest. I can absolutely see myself as someone who works really, really hard in spurts for years and then disconnects, whether it's for six months or, or whatever it may be. Absolutely. I think that will be like a pattern for my life now. Yeah. Okay, cool. So when you sort of narrowed down to focusing on venture capital, you did briefly allude to saying that, oh, there's the finance side of things, the entrepreneurial side of things. But how did you actually get interested in supporting founders as an investor yourself? Yeah, it's sort of twofold, like in, in a work context for me, if I take a step back even further, I have immense respect for people trying to change their circumstances or people trying to make the world a better place that aligns really closely with what I'm trying to do, which is just be a better human every day. And so naturally I want to see those people succeed. And so in a work context, I had a lot of success working on the sell side and I got a lot of joy from working on the sell side. And what I mean by that is I was representing sellers of common stock often. So these were employees at startups that you know, the, the craziness of 21 and 22, people were paying 150% of the last price round for, for common stock. And you had this ability that you, you entered into a transaction with someone who was on a startup wage and was chipping away. And six weeks later, they, they walked away multimillionaire, but it completely changed life. And, and that was just such a, such a cool experience to be able to do that on a weekly basis at the time. And then from a personal perspective. I don't know. I struggle in a way to buy into the idea of my personal capital is changing the world because I invested in a startup. I don't really see it that way. I invest primarily to change my own circumstances still. I want to get to a place where I feel like I've got a really good foundation from which I can take risk. And then maybe at that point I can do something that produces exponential improvement for society or some small niche in society. But until that point, I'm investing for, for capitalistic purposes. Uh, and so I don't feel too comfortable about pitching that I'm supporting founders per se. Although if I do invest, if I can ever help, I absolutely will. 
And that's actually quite a good lead into the next question. So given what you've just said, based on, well, I want the financial returns for me first before I think about supporting others, what do you think being an angel investor means in that case? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good question. And I think probably to clarify, right, I won't invest in something that I think sends society backwards. It's more a matter of it doesn't necessarily have to be earth shattering in terms of improving the world. Like it can sort of just be marginal if I foresee a return that I'm comfortable enough. But what is angel investing to me? I think the process of being an angel investor and, and getting better at it is like the ultimate test of self-awareness. <laughs> I think that's what it is. Um, I mean, it, it can be a lot of different things to different people, right? People do write checks to, um, to try and make the world a better place. Some people are looking for co companies that radically change the way we live. Some people purely looking to make money. I think others via a unicorn or something like that, they're looking for the home run. I think others identify companies that they can see being acquired in a couple of years down the line or whatever it may be. And they feel like that's a good enough return. So I think it's, it's different for everyone, but. I think it's absolutely a test of self-awareness, right? Like it's kind of Annie Duke's point of just because you get a good outcome doesn't necessarily mean you made a good decision or, and also just because you get a bad outcome doesn't, doesn't mean you made a, a bad decision. I think when you start out alone to get really good at this, you have to, you have to be able to differentiate and be really honest with yourself about the outcomes you get based on the quality of inputs and your decision-making. I think that is a very practical, rational approach to how you conduct this activity. Okay, let's talk about the kinds of investments that someone like yourself might make in that case. If at this point in time, you said you're not necessarily looking for things that are exponential or world-changing things, but later on down the line, you might do. So perhaps we should break your response up into what you would do now versus what you would do if you could. And let's talk about the general ideas or themes that you would want to invest in and why you would want to do that. So if you want to think about that from the lens of what you would do now versus what you would do, let's say Jack is a mega billionaire in like 10 years time or something like that. What do you think you'd do differently at that point in your life? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I think maybe something that sort of touches on both and then I'll try and separate them again but like i guess my philosophy and this is completely subjective right is that we all do one of three things we do more than what we should do based on where we start out we do what we should do based on where we start out or we do less so for me i'm really dedicated to making sure i do at least what i should do coming from you know i'm a white male educated, never struggled for food or shelter or anything like that, but I need to never be a drain on society. So I'm very focused on getting to that point where I create a platform for myself. So what does that look like at the moment? I think I'm really intrigued by, everyone talks about what Australia is to the US. I'm really intrigued by what New Zealand is to Australia. My time in America taught me that there's niche industries in Australia that were absolutely world leaders in. And I think maybe sometimes they don't get enough respect and, and we don't back those enough because we look for companies that the US does really well and we try and apply the same template. So I'm, I'm incredibly bullish on this part of the world. Honestly, there's phenomenal opportunities in 
almost indexing the APAC region by being an LP and a handful of funds here, which is not the case in other parts of the world. So I think in many ways, I'm trying to hedge myself by, by taking some control of, of the early stage pieces out of my own hands, but I'm betting on a theme without picking individual companies in some ways. Obviously I operate in the growth stage space. I think there are some phenomenal opportunities in the market at the moment. You're looking at some really blue chip companies trading at meaningful discounts to prior valuations and, and that's with another 12 to 24 months of growth since they had those valuations as well. So yeah, there's opportunities in that space as well. And look, with all of that too, like I'll never write a check for a founder that makes my skin crawl or that, that I do not believe is doing something for the right reasons. The founder needs to, to have a good heart and obviously that's subjective too, but I need to feel comfortable going on a journey with that person and no matter how it turns out. And I want to be proud to be associated. So that's sort of very much where my head's at now. Where does my head go in the future? Look, when I say platform to take risk from, maybe I would get to a place where I start to fund ESG type startups or startups that would hopefully secure the future of the planet a hundred years down the line. Maybe having children would change my perspective on all of those sorts of things. I, I do still just struggle with the notion that I need to do my bit to, to make the world a better place, but I, I think people and corporations are going to do what they're going to do no matter what. And me betting on the movement of, of their underlying share price, it doesn't really move the needle. So I think where I would like to be able to do things is, I don't know whether it ends up with a foundation or a charity or who knows what it is, but like, I would love to get to a place where I can give back to people that share a similar story to me, people from more rural areas. Yeah. That, that, that don't have a really clear path to find their way to a capital city or to work in financial markets or to work in tech. I think sometimes that's really underestimated I being in Sydney and socializing here, right? It's, oh, this is so-and-so and they're at the cutting edge of fashion. Oh, this is so-and-so they're at the cutting edge of this industry. Like everyone you meet is doing something absolutely incredible, but, but they sort of know no different because they grew up in this environment. So I think for me, it would be more about getting to a place where I can allocate my time more so than my money, but back my time with money to help change pathways for young people. And I think maybe getting a little bit, a little bit dreamy, but if I think about myself, so many of my decisions at 18 were made thinking about money and thinking about money I didn't have. And so like the, the concept of dreaming or the concept of chasing a dream was secondary to practicality. And that conundrum is real for the vast majority of people, certainly in our country and obviously in the world that we're very privileged in this country to, to, to even be where we are. But I think superannuation is an amazing concept, right? For 20 to 65 and then beyond. I think there's something that we can do for zero to 18 so that 18 year olds, uh, are on a far more equal playing field that that is far less dependent on what their parents or prior generations have done. So yeah, if, if you're asking me in a dream world, what am I doing? That's what I'm working on. Yeah. Wonderful. There is definitely something to be said about the financial literacy education that most children did not receive in the lead up to, uh, becoming an adult. That is definitely an opportunity space, I'm, I'm sure, that in the long run, you might want to keep your eyes out on. So throughout your whole answer, there's definitely your personal goals, but there is a strong ethical framework around which you're basing your decisions, which hopefully this question isn't too much of a curveball, but I'm just going to quote something from the Hamia Group website here. 
which says, the Heyman Group does not weigh the benefits of, quote-unquote, doing the right thing strategically or in a business context. Could you expand on that a little bit more? Because it seems slightly at odds with what you've just shared, but I might be misinterpreting that. Yeah, and I, I understand certainly how it could be perceived that way. But the premise of that is that I spent a lot of time in the US and it's an interesting space and there's some interesting operators in the space that I work in. And generally I find that you get on an introductory call with people and the first thing that they do is they tell you how ethical they are. Um, and how how honest they are and how they do clean business and all of these sorts of things. And I almost started to make it a rule that the more someone stresses how honest and ethical they are, the more I should be concerned. And the US to me is very much a zero-sum game. People step over each other. When people were discussing doing the right thing, what that actually translated to in, in practical terms was doing what resulted in maximum dollars or maximum future execution and deal flow and things like that. The right thing wasn't about when you look in the mirror, who are you? It was about what maximizes the bottom line. And so that was my point around, I don't weigh it in the business context. For me, it's about if my mother, if my grandmother, whoever knew exactly what I was doing right now and exactly what was going through my mind, how would they feel and would they be proud of me? And so that's the point. That I'm trying to make there. Gotcha. And how do you think they would feel? I think they feel pretty good. I hope, I hope they feel pretty good. I, you never know, right? But that sounds a little conceited. But as I've matured, my decision making has definitely improved, right? Like good, good judgment comes from having made mistakes. Making mistakes comes from bad judgment originally, right? So it's a process. But yeah, there's lots of things that I've walked away from now that I once wouldn't have walked away from that. Financially, it would have been great for me. But yeah, the ends can't justify the means. I, I really believe that now. Fantastic. So we've talked about some of the things that you'd like to do in the future. And you've actually just talked about things that you walked away from. So decisions that you had to make in the past, which things you've said no to, opportunities that were presented to you. If I was to put it to you, you could travel back in time and you could back a company or a founder. What's someone or something that you wished you could have invested in and why? Yeah. Oh, look, there's so many very obvious answers, right? But I feel like you could ask anyone that question and they'd be like, oh, I had that idea or I thought about that. If I'm honest, the one that I know that at the time I was like, I wish there was a way to buy shares in this. Or, you know, how do you do this was, was wise. I was in college for seven to 2011. So I think they'd launched right at the end of 2010 or early 2011, something like that. And I'd experienced three brutal years paying bank fees and trying to get money back and forth. And when you've got a thousand dollars to your name, every little bit of that, those, those fees really hurt. And wise came in and just it put money back in my pocket that at the time it was like food for a couple of weeks uh, you know, or, or at least a week and that was really meaningful and I remember doing a bit of background on, on the two founders and they were literally solving the exact same problem that, that I was experiencing and I desperately wanted to be a part of it then but obviously had no no scope and certainly wasn't a sophisticated investor <laughs> but even if I look at the business now and I think the stock's been on a bit of a run in the last few months most things but 
two thirds of those transactions are still done by banks. There's tons of room for that business to grow still. And I think interesting that they want to cannibalize their own margins, but I think they would only be doing that with confidence that other business lines are going to do very well. So I, I love the mission, genuinely wanted to be a part of that one and regret that I wasn't. So there you go. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's only so much you can regret if there wasn't really the opportunity to take part. Okay, that's interesting. I think we can probably start winding up the conversation now. So I'll ask a question that seems to be becoming tradition now. But uh, Jack, if everything goes right for you, whether that's uh, with Hamia Group or with investments that you make, what do you think the world will look like? Man, it's a really good question. I mean, I think I try and again, as probably been a bit of a, a bit of a theme or a bit overkill, but I try and look at everything from the perspective of, of I need to have my own house in order first before I can help anyone else. So ideally I'm living a very happy, healthy, fulfilled life. Um, and I think that gives me a platform to, um, to do other things. I think in a work context around liqu liquidity and secondaries and things like that, I would love that if in Australia, we got to a place where the, the primary conversation when someone's negotiating comp or looking to join a company is absolutely around equity. And the biggest pitch from a company is that, hey, we're, we're liquidity friendly. We have mediums to help you realize this wealth and things like that. I'd, I'd love for the understanding of the space to, to get to, to that place. I think that'd be a big win in Australia. Yeah. And I think, look, what the scale is, I have no idea, but I really want to give back to people that are trying to walk a similar path to, to what I have. It's not to say I've done anything great or by any means, right? But just make it easier for people to realize what's possible when you're coming from a rural part of this country. And I think in order to do both of those things, you probably need to be fairly public about your learnings, whether that's perhaps campaigning for regulatory changes in order for liquidity to be more accessible or to reach out to people who are in rural areas and share your path and open their eyes to the opportunities that are potentially available to them. So how do you think you'd go about that? Uh, good questions. Look, to be honest with you, I don't necessarily know that lobbying is actually the answer here. I think it's better that we work within the confines of, of what we have and we provide solutions that will work. And I think that's very possible. And I think there's people doing work on that currently. And I think there's some really good, really cool stuff happening. Look at what Stonks is doing in the US. That's a very interesting model. Uh, I've got some insight there about what they're doing and how they're approaching it. I certainly want to have some conversations with some people about what that, something similar could look like here. Not what they're doing, but the, there's an underlying premise that it would be very helpful. And then, yeah, look, I think, you know what? Now, when I go home, you spend time with people. Love's everything. You just spend time with people. You try and be what you would have loved, right? Like you're just their friend, but you try and give them some frameworks or some possibilities or make sure they keep their mind open. And I think more than anything, you make sure they don't give up on themselves. And so obviously that's very small scale at the moment. And how do you scale something like that? I don't know. Scaling humanities, it's very difficult, but. I think that that would be the point, right? Where if resources were significant, whether it's capital or hopefully time as well, then, then that's when you start to do some cool stuff. Well, perhaps you can share this podcast with them. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mate, I was, I meant to say that to you. Really, truly, this is the sort of stuff. At, I had a bit of a moment where I was very nervous about doing this because I kind of realized, I was like, holy hell, people can access this. But then I thought about it. I was like, this is, this is the kind of thing that, that I needed that, that didn't exist, you know, that, that people talking about more than what you know in your day-to-day life. So, mate, what you're doing is phenomenal and, and I really admire it because, yeah, I don't. I don't have the courage to start a podcast um, by any means. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for doing what you do. And thank you for having the courage to be a guest on a podcast. It's very much appreciated. Jack, thank you once again for coming on the show. The last thing that I'll get you to do is if you had any social media or contact info you would like to share in case perhaps someone would make use of Hamia Group Services. Yeah, for sure, mate. My email's jack at hamiagroup.com, J-A-C-K at H-A-M-I-A-G-R-O-U-P.com. And that's also someone listening to it that sort of fits the bill of what we were just discussing and you're trying to figure out a way to change these circumstances. Give me a shout even more so. I'd love to, love to do anything I can help to help. Fantastic. Jack, thank you once again. No worries, mate. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of Promise. Be sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Do you think you or someone you know would have ideas worth sharing? Send me an email to sean at promise.fm. Otherwise, subscribe and stay tuned to learn from tomorrow's heroes and what we've got is Promise. Promise.